Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this is episode three in the five-part agitation series. If you recall, episode one focused on differentiating organic from psychiatric. Episode two was on non-pharmacologic interventions in the agitated child. And episode three, you guessed it, pharmacologic interventions for agitated children. This podcast episode and others in the series is a co-production of the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, whose mission is to minimize morbidity and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the emergency continuum. Dennis Wren is my co-producer for this episode. We are going to talk about the medications commonly used to treat acute agitation in children and adolescents. I'm going to begin this episode by saying that there is no perfect medication option for every scenario when you are dealing with an agitated child. And the true efficacy of many of these options is unknown in children. You should always follow your local practice guidelines and recommendations as well as adhere to approved medications in your facility. In general, if a patient has a PRN on their medication list, do that. If they've had something that's worked for them in the past, do that. Now with that in mind, if you have a cooperative patient, offer oral medications first. This can give the patient a sense of some control. I liken an anxiolytic or med for agitation to taking a medicine for pain. Many patients feel like they're being drugged. We just want to help them feel better. It's our job to help close that divide when we discuss these medications with them. Holding a patient down and giving them a shot is traumatic. And many drugs have oral forms. Some are rapid dissolving, like olanzapine, and these can be quite effective. Intramuscular is, however, an option for the combative patient or the patient who really needs pharmacologic control and who refuses to take oral medications and cannot be calmed by using non-pharmacologic means. It is incredibly important to assure that the patient and staff follow local practices to stay safe and avoid unanticipated injuries. You should be familiar with dosing, onset, and what monitoring is needed following an intramuscular shot because absorption is not instantaneous. So let's move on to a discussion of some individual classes of drugs, starting first with the antipsychotics. And now for a brief history lesson. The first generation or so-called typical antipsychotics were developed in the 1950s. These are serotonin dopamine antagonists and multi-acting receptor targeted antipsychotics. They're phenothiazine derivatives, which have varying degrees of acting on dopamine, histamine, and cholinergic receptors. This accounts for a lot of their side effects and some of their antiemetic properties. The classic drug in this class is haloperidol, which can be dosed 0.5 to 5 milligrams orally or 0.05 to 0.15 milligram per kilogram IM up to 5 milligrams. It can be given every six hours, and the onset is about 30 to 60 minutes orally and 15 to 30 minutes intramuscular. Side effects include extrapyramidal symptoms, decreased seizure threshold, hypotension, and QTC prolongation. It's not used very often in children 
for agitation because there are safer and newer options. And you may want to consider co-administration with a drug like diphenhydramine to cut back on some of the side effects. Other drugs in this group include chlorpromazine, also known as Thorazine, which can be given orally or intramuscularly, and droperidol, which is typically given intramuscularly. Droperidol is really popular in many general emergency departments for adult patients, but it's not used commonly in children. Way back in 2001, when I was in medical school, it got an FDA black box warning citing concerns for QTC prolongation and torsades de pont. Now, some dispute this evidence. There were nine cases of torsade over a 30-year period, all in doses higher than 5 milligrams. There's a systematic review of the effectiveness and safety of droperidol for pediatric agitation in acute care settings. This study had six articles that met the inclusion criteria, two in the pre-hospital setting, one in the ED, and three in the inpatient hospital setting. The articles included a prospective observational study, three retrospective observational studies, and two case reports. Overall time to sedation was less than 15 minutes. Less than one in five needed a second dose. Adverse reactions included dystonia and transient hypotension. One patient did have a prolonged QTC, and another had transient respiratory depression, but both had medical comorbidities. And ultimately, I think this study may lead you to believe that it's safe, but the authors of the systematic review also said that the studies included were assessed to have a high risk of bias. So ultimately, further data is needed. I know that not mentioning droperidol would be a conspicuous omission, but the data is limited in children, and its popularity and effectiveness in adults can't necessarily be extrapolated to kids. So I think there's more to come on that front. Let's fast forward from the 1950s all the way to the 1980s. This is when the second generation or atypical antipsychotics were developed, and these are dopamine partial agonists. Here's a list of some of the drugs that you may be familiar with. Aripiprazole or Abilify, Esenapine, Safras, Olanzapine, Zyprexa, Quetiapine or Seroquel, Risperidone or Risperdal, and Zyprisidone or Geodon. I would bet that most of you have used one or more of these drugs. As a class, the most common side effects include akathisia, sedation, headache, nausea, vomiting, weight gain, and changes to liver function. Rarely, cardiac conduction abnormalities may be seen as well, like long QT. I'm not going to go over each and every one of them, especially with regard to their management for outpatient mental health concerns. Some of these drugs are certainly useful in acute agitation, like olanzapine. It can be given as an oral version, especially as an oral dissolving tablet, the dosing varies based on whether you are less than 40 or greater than 40 kilograms. For acute agitation, my practice is 5 milligrams for the smaller kids and 10 milligrams of the ODT for the bigger ones. Onset is relatively quick in less than an hour, and it can last for 6 to 8 hours. You would avoid this if a patient's already received an IM dose of olanzapine or IM or IV benzodiazepines. And you got to watch out for a paradoxical reaction or over-sedation. Olanzapine is also available via an IM route, but it's not given as commonly. We have Risperdal or Risperidone. 
that has an onset of about 30 to 60 minutes if given orally or as an ODT version. You want to avoid this medicine if there's a history of neuroleptic malignant syndrome, severe dystonia, or history of QTC problems. Now, you don't necessarily need to get an EKG beforehand, but just be aware of it. And the side effects, again, include sedation, akathisia, QT prolongation, hypotension, and some extrapyramidal symptoms. And then quetiapine is another option that is either given orally or IM. Both routes, it has relatively fast onset of about 30 minutes. And the side effects are a little bit less than some of the other antipsychotics. Now, out of all of these drugs, you may find that a patient is already on one of them, so it's safe to give a PRN, or if you have local practice, which recommends one over the others, either due to expert consensus or availability, go with that one. It's always a good idea to check your algorithms and practice parameters. Let's move on to benzodiazepines. That's another class of drug that many of you are familiar with. This is sedation via GABA. It's kind of like drinking a couple beers to take a hefty dose of a benzo. Two of the more common drugs that we see used in children are lorazepam, which is given either orally, intramuscularly, or IV, and midazolam, which can be given orally, nasally, or intramuscularly. These are generally safe and effective in children. You may be familiar with their use for anxiolysis during procedures. And some experts recommend these as first-line treatment options for acute agitation. It's probably a good idea to avoid them in a child who is delirious, who has autism spectrum disorder or is neuroatypical, who has a history of paradoxical reaction, you know, angry drunk, and avoid within one hour of a drug like IM olanzapine. Side effects, as expected, would be respiratory depression, especially if co-administered with another drug that sedates, disinhibition, and delirium. Next up are antihistamines. So a lot of kids will get PRN, hydroxazine, or diphenhydramine to help them relax or maybe even go to sleep. You'll see that on their medication list. This is sedation via the histamine effect on cortical neurons. Diphenhydramine can be given orally or IM, and hydroxazine has similar dosing up to 1 milligram per kilogram per dose with a max of 50 milligrams. You want to avoid antihistamines in patients that are delirious or intoxicated or have a history of paradoxical reaction. Rarely they can cause QTC prolongation or disinhibition. Next on the list is ketamine. Many people love them some ketamine, and I certainly do for procedural sedation. It has rapid onset due to high bioavailability, especially via the IM and intranasal route. We don't see QT prolongation issues like in the antipsychotics. It can be safe even if you're worried about an overdose. That's important if you aren't sure of the patient's weight or what they may have taken. You will not see respiratory depression unless you give it rapidly via RSI, but you can see laryngospasm which is a bit more likely with the IM route, as is vomiting. And you want to avoid ketamine in patients who are schizophrenic or have a history of significant psychosis, as this can precipitate a violent, disinhibited reaction that can increase their risk of harming themselves or other team members. One final drug that I'd like to mention is clonidine. A lot of children are on this on a baseline level. Interestingly, it's also one of the most frequent drugs that accounts for exploratory ingestions that require admissions in young children. 
So clonidine is an alpha-2 central agonist. So wait, it causes sedation, but it's an agonist? I like to think of it like you actively pushing the brakes on stimulatory output from the central nervous system. If you are familiar with its side effects, you know that it can cause hypotension, bradycardia, and over-sedation. So you don't want to co-administer it with other drugs. Chances are this is a medication that's going to be on the kid's regular medication list, and I've only rarely seen it used as a PRN. Okay, with that in mind, how do you decide what the right medication to use is? I think the first question that you need to ask is, why is the patient agitated? Do they have a history of developmental delay, autism spectrum disorder, a sensory processing disorder? Do they have a psychiatric diagnosis? Are they delirious? Are they in pain? Are they having withdrawal? Are they intoxicated? These are critical questions. It's also important to assess the severity of the agitation. This can dictate which interventions are appropriate, including, as alluded to in episode number two of this series, non-pharmacologic measures, which are often successful. And so mild agitation would be subtle behaviors such as fidgeting, irritability, a fixed stare. Moderate agitation would be a patient who's raising their voice, yelling, pacing, headbanging, or defensive stance. Severe agitation is a combative patient with imminent risk of harm to self and others. So with these historical and severity considerations in mind, and with the caveat that you should definitely follow local practice patterns, here are some management suggestions based on the etiology and severity of agitation. So if you have a child with developmental delay or autism spectrum disorder, involve the caregiver. Enact an existing behavioral care plan. Utilize sensory tools and calming interventions and identify previously effective medications. Oral options would include clonidine, risperidone, or olanzapine. The dissolving tablet of olanzapine could be a great option. You want to avoid the IM route if possible. Consider an extra dose of a patient's home medication if that's an option. And I think in this patient population, avoid benzodiazepines. This may have a higher risk of disinhibition unless it's been effective in the past. If you have a patient with a suspected psychiatric diagnosis, again, use non-pharmacologic means and use a medication that has worked in the past or, again, an additional dose of a home medication. If the patient has psychosis or it's anxiety or trauma-related, a benzodiazepine might be a great choice. If you're worried about psychosis, ketamine is probably best avoided and avoid antipsychotics if the patient is catatonic. It just makes it harder to assess them. Oral dissolving olanzapine could be a good choice in this scenario as well. If you have a patient that is delirious, again, remember, this is a change in cognition and or a very confused patient, they're going to need a medical workup first, right? But sometimes you need to give this patient an acute anti-agitation medication to get your studies like CT or LP if you need it. So if they can take an oral medicine, quetiapine, risperidone, clonidine, or lanzapine, IM, olanzapine, or haloperidol, or maybe droperidol depending on where you work. IV is haloperidol, really. But again, you want to avoid benzodiazepines in this population as well as anticholinergics. This could worsen the delirium. And frankly, it's a good idea to reserve benzodiazepines for seizures. 
which can happen if the patient has drug withdrawal or intoxication. So again, do a great medical workup. Think about what the patient ingested and the effects on them. If they have an unknown substance and they're very agitated or they're following a particular toxin drone where everything's very elevated, like sympathomimetic or diphenhydramine, benzodiazepines are your first go-to. If they have opioid withdrawal, methadone or buprenorphine, but frankly, I don't manage a lot of that in the ED. It's usually an opioid overdose and then we're getting Narcan. And then if you've got a patient where you're not sure of the etiology and they're just very agitated, a moderately agitated patient of unknown etiology should get diphenhydramine or a benzodiazepine. They're relatively safe. A severely agitated patient, haloperidol, a benzo, zyprisidone, ultimately you have to monitor these kids very closely. I know that's a lot to unpackage, and thinking about agitation in this sort of structure can be helpful. In general, some key recommendations are, if a patient is already on a home medication and or if they have a PRN already prescribed, give that one. If they have a known psychiatric diagnosis and they are agitated, assess the degree of agitation and their risk to themselves and others, and choose your route accordingly. Oral medications are always a great first go-to, especially if you can convince the child to take it in a compassionate manner. IM routes like haloperidol, droperidol, zyprisidone should be reserved for children who are a danger to themselves and others, should be monitored closely, and are only a temporary means of chemical control. Should always revert back to non-pharmacologic means, and de-escalate interventions such as restraints as soon as possible. And I believe this is something I'm mentioning for the 414th time in this episode. Please follow local procedures and recommendations. Document what you gave, why you gave it, as well as the impact. Sometimes the medication will allow the non-pharmacologic interventions to be more successful, so don't stop trying them. All right, so that's it for this episode, number three in a five-part series focused on agitation in children. I hope that this helped you understand a little bit more about some of the medications that we use to manage acute agitation. And if you found it a little bit overwhelming, that's okay too. There's a lot of medicines out there, and just like treating pain, I think it's our job as emergency care providers to become familiar with the various options in our armamentarium to know when to use them and what the potential problems and complications are. The fourth episode in the series will shift gears and talk about safely transporting children to the emergency department via pre-hospital services. And again, I want to thank my colleagues at the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center. You can learn more about their mission at emscimprovement.center. If you'd like to provide feedback on this episode or any other in the series, send me an email, direct message on Twitter at PemTweets, a comment on Facebook, a review on your favorite podcast site, or, I don't know, a letter with a stamp on it. For Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.